Hi, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the session. My name is Manish Kovil. I lead AWS practice at Wipro. Uh, we have a very interesting panel today to talk about building smart applications on cloud, right? And, and how to use the smart applications to provide a better customer experience and worker experience. So that's what the panel is going to be talking about. So let me just quickly introduce the panel to you. We have Ramesh Nagarajan, Senior Vice President of Cloud at Wipro. Hello, everyone. Good morning. We have Sid Nag. He's Research Director at Gartner for Cloud. Good morning. We have Shirish Lau. He's the COO and CTO of Heart Hanks. Good morning. We have Glenn Weinstein. He's the CIO and co-founder of Apidio, now a Wipro company. Good morning. And we have Kiran Desai, who heads our global infrastructure services. Good morning. So first, thank you all for making the time. I know uh, a lot of you have been out at parties and all, so thanks for here, being here early in the morning today. And just kicking off the session about smart applications, right? So Ramesh, why don't you get started with what, what are smart applications? Yeah, definitely, Manish. So uh, there are, are, the customer requirements are quite uh, varying, and uh, they're rapidly varying. And uh, so is the technology. So if you have to uh, uh, marry the number of technologies and solve the customer problem, you need to come up with a new age of uh, applications, which is, we call as smart applications. So if you, what is smart? Uh, you know, we are trying to give a definition here. So a smart application is aware. Uh, aware in the sense it is natural, it is uh, responsive, and it is adoptive, and those are the adjectives that I will attach to uh, aware. And it, it is intelligent, and it is learning, it is learning from insights, it's learning from data, and uh, it is autonomous, autonomous in the sense that it can scale itself, it can heal itself, it can uh, uh, you know, uh, be intelligent uh, to be adaptive. And uh, that are the three main attributes that we give uh, uh, to the word uh, smart. And uh, <clears throat> so if you really look at uh, the smartness, they are backed up by uh, four imperatives. A first, a smart application has to be interacting uh, smartly, which, is, which means that it has to be interacting in, in multi-channel, and uh, which are uh, you know, speech, text, audio, video, and uh, all of them. Second is uh, they must be based on smart processes, is, uh, which are uh, you know, customer friendly, which uh, solve a business problem uniquely, which probably uses uh, you know, IoT, AR, VR kind of uh, technologies. And third is must be based on a smart platform. And uh, cloud being one of the smart platforms, cloud exposes a lot of services. Uh, you know, AI, ML, you know, uh, database, and uh, so on and so forth. And all of these services uh, makes, you know, cloud as a podium where we can construct an application and through composing using these services. So it becomes a, a smart platform. And, and, and the other attribute of smart application is uh, it is... Uh, no, smart in security sense because it is adoptive authentication and uh, uses cognitive techniques uh, to defend of attacks, etc. So if you really look at it, can all the applications that we produce have all these attributes? Need not be. They can have uh, a set of attributes from this set and uh, probably keep learning and uh, growing. And, uh, you know, Cloud exposing a lot of past services and, and Amazon like a platform is an ideal platform for building in smart applications. And uh, now I'll pause here and uh, hand off for an external perspective on how the smart applications are changing the world. What do you said? Thanks, Ramesh. Yeah, so I, you know, I'll just give you guys a little bit of uh, insight into uh, what's going on in the industry. So I bring the industry perspective to this conversation. Uh, so from that perspective, so Ramesh talked about interactive applications. He talked about uh, the processes, uh, the idea of cloud as a platform, and then the security aspects. So I think all of that kind of ties into what we're seeing at Gardner 
in terms of you know, how organizations are moving applications from on-premises to the cloud. Uh, this one? Okay. On-premises, on okay, got it. So yeah, uh, thank you. On-premises to the cloud, but also in terms of uh, you know, what, what we're seeing where the processes and automations are being brought into the picture. How are you building these applications with things like artificial intelligence, with things like machine learning, with natural language processing? So for example, we have companies that are looking at building applications based on requirements that are being scanned by a you know, natural language processor. So you don't have to read requirements and build applications anymore. You have things like you know, serverless compute from a cloud perspective as a platform, for example, AWS Lambda function, right? Uh, how do you look at the security aspect of it? How do you detect security anomalies, right, in terms of using, again, pattern recognitions and things of that nature? So I'll get into some of those aspects of how the industry is evolving and building smart applications. So I think one of the things to bear in mind right up front is that don't think of building applications to, in the cloud or smart applications for that matter solely to save costs because that's not the sort of the end goal here. As a matter of fact, at Gardner, we believe that when you start to make your journey to the cloud, you're going to experience a sort of cost positive and a cost neutral situation because you're not going to flip a switch and move all your applications to the cloud overnight. So you're actually going to be running in what we call at Gardner the bimodal operation. So you're going to have the, you know, mode one where you have a lot of uh, uh, what I call, you know, production-oriented application that will continue to run, leveraging some more advanced cloud technologies in our, for example, if you look at the Gardner hype cycle, you look at mature technologies like infrastructure and software as a service that are more ad uh, adapted into the mode one situation. Whereas if you look at mode two, you're going to do more experimental stuff. You're going to use things like advanced platform as a service technologies. You may use things like, you know, microservices, containers, and you know some of the more uh, um, um, forward-looking technologies in that in developing applications. But also a lot of automation tools around AI and ML. So bringing all that together is a lot of experimentation. So you're going to find that you may actually see costs go up a little bit. But over the, over the over the uh, out years, you're going to see cost drop. So think of it that way. Also, when you move from a license-based on-premises consumption model of these smart applications to a subscription-based, you have to be very careful about how you budget for that situation or scenario. We oftentimes see folks getting sticker shock, right? They move to the cloud, and at the end of six months or a year, they get a bill from the provider, and they say, oops, you know, this is not what we expected. So think of it that way. Think of it building smart applications more as a movement towards an agile and innovative, empowering your end users, and Ramesh talked about interaction. So these applications are not running in a siloed manner. They're working with other applications that are existing in your, you know, in your enterprise, uh, your organizations, data center structure, but also from a B2B perspective, it's interacting with other third-party applications from your other vendors that you work with. So, we like to think about assessing the architecture for the applications and infrastructure as so five R's, right? So, so first and foremost, what we call you know, rehost. So what you do in that situation is you take the application and you simply move to a lift and shift of the application into the cloud, right? Very minimal, uh, very minimal uh, work involved there. The second piece is the refactoring. So you make light modifications to the applications, but again, the in infrastructure underlying architecture slightly change, right? So in other words, you take advantage of cloud attributes. What are they? So things like scalability, things like elasticity, things like multi-tenancy, things like metering, billing, chargebacks. So when you start taking advantage of those, you're doing lift and shift with modifications. The third one is for re-architecting. You change the application, modify the application, but you also replace the underlying architecture, right? So you could take advantage of, for example, uh, cloud, uh, capabilities, for example, you know, EC2, for example, Redshift. Uh, you could take advantage of serverless, you know, technology like Lambda, for, for example, right? And then the whole idea of rebuilding the application. This is where you, you basically, quote-unquote, rewrite the application in, in that sense, and you rebuild it um, 
use, utilizing some capabilities of the application as is, but sort of rebuilding it from that perspective. But you replace the whole entire underlying architecture, right? So you can take advantage of all the potential capabilities, not just from an infrastructure as a service perspective, but also platform as a service perspective. You may use some advanced databases as a service capabilities. You may use advanced middleware capabilities, and so on and so forth. And third, finally, replacing, where you're essentially gutting the old application. I like to call it you know, functionality migration rather than application migration. So you have an application A that does functionality one, two, and three, and you now have application B, which looks nothing like application A, but does the same exact functionality in a whole new way, right? So think of it that way. So if you look at that, sort of that, uh, that perspective, one of the things we do a lot at Gartner is do a, do look at trends. We look at, you know, we conduct surveys, we talk to, you know, thousands and thousands of folks like yourself. We talk to CIOs, we talk to, you know, CTOs, CMOs, you know, business leaders, IT architects, and so on. So one of the things that we asked is, you know, which of the following initiatives are likely to impact your organization's software spending? So again, going back to what Ramesh mentioned earlier, you know, we're seeing a spike and in interest in spending around, obviously, digital, the digital push. You know, companies are trying to reinvent themselves from being a staid, old-world company to a digital business-oriented company, right? So, and then also, where's the role of AI and ML? Again, we're seeing an up, uplift in spending there, right? Uh, so moving on to sort of the next uh, area of focus from a trends perspective, we're also seeing that most organizations are building new and rewritten applications. We talk, I talked about that in the first slide. But if you look at where the, where the most effort is going, it's really going toward new applications running natively in the cloud, so the whole cloud-native narrative. So 59% of folks said that you know, they're really looking to transform their current applications to cl cloud-native. So what are the applications that are being deployed in the cloud? So again, we talk about, we asked our respondents, you know, what kind of applications are prime candidates for moving to the cloud, right? You, you see the usual suspects like ERP, CRM, you know, web collaboration, but also what's interesting is the IT operations and management, right? These are the applications that folks are really having difficulty with from a, from a, from a operationalized perspective, right? So when you start to make your journey to the cloud, uh, it's not just going to an AWS or, a, or, a, or another provider and getting a cloud, pure play cloud service, but it's also the on-ramping onto those properties and assets, right? So at Gardner, we like to talk about these services at cloud, as cloud-related services. So these are things like cloud management platforms, cloud service brokerage, you know, and so on and so forth. So again, IT operations and management falls into the whole CMP narrative or cloud management platform narrative, and no surprise there that those applications are being run in an as-a-service mode by a large percentage of the organizations we talk to. And then, again, we ask around where the investment's going. Uh, we see that development services, I think I just move one fast, too fast here. Yeah, development services is number one, right, for investment because that's where folks are putting out money. They're hiring developers to, to, to get the application modernized and so on and so forth. So anyway, those are some of the trends. Uh, I'll take some questions in the end if you have. And in the meanwhile, I'll pass it over to Sharish to talk about Thank you. the customer experience. So I'm going to draw on my uh, current role uh, at running a marketing services organization, working with many mid and large size companies, as well as my prior role as chief marketing officer of a Fortune 200 company for about a decade, to really talk about digital using cloud to transform the entire go-to-market. And if you look at cloud um, and the challenge it poses to marketers, cloud gives us, as marketers, scalability, real-time responsiveness. It gives us everything we've always asked for. So the key question we all have is, now what? If you look at what we see in the marketplace right now, leading and what we really discovered about the power of cloud, leading edge organizations are really transforming the approach to the front office. One we benchmarked a lot is Amazon. And um, I'll walk through exactly what they're doing. Um, what we also see is the vast majority of corporations are far behind. 
and there are some very specific structural barriers in terms of the use of cloud the way we see it in the most advanced organizations. Hart Hanks and Wipro have partnered to really build an ecosystem to enable digital transformation in the front office quickly and cost effectively. And we believe fundamentally CIOs are critical to the transformation process and need to partner with CMOs. If you look at CRM marketing, basically the marketing around acquiring and retaining customers. In the old days, it was a very expensive human-to-human, one-to-one interaction. First generation direct mail, very cost effective, but relatively depersonalized. When we got to digital, most organizations built separate digital systems, separate digital marketing organizations. It was multi-channel, different channels talking to the customer in different voices. What we see right now is the power of cloud to really go to omni-channel, one voice across all your tactics. And I'll give you some of examples of upsides by moving to true omni-channel. And then ultimately, what I call CRM 4.0, 50% of voice searches by one forecast expected to be voice, and the need for personalization will go up dramatically as we get to customers looking to things like voice interfaces. Uh, I won't go through all the metrics. Every metric you look at out there from a marketing perspective and sales perspective would tell you personalization pays off in terms of incremental conversion, incremental sales. It is a distinct competitive advantage. We are here at AWS. I think everyone knows one of the world's most customer-centric companies, Amazon, and they're built around that, providing a highly personalized, fast, and easy experience. But if you look at behind the scenes how they built some of their core processes on the commerce side, First, just to get from the first to the second page of the website, they run over 300 microservices. And a lot of that is actually tapping analytics in real time about the customer. Propensity to buy, behavioral, customer lifetime value. The ability to do that, you can't run those analytics on the fly. It's got to be staged. So the way they're doing this to drive that level of personalization is what they've actually created is they've turned the traditional customer data store into a real-time, analytically-driven attribution of the customer. Um, tied to that, they've created a micro-content store of very rich content that is highly personalized, and there's lots of it, so they can actually take advantage of that insight they have at the actual customer level. And they built their overall experience and capabilities on the site to deliver that degree of personalization. What's surprising, Amazon Commerce, most companies are in some kind of digital transformation. Um, and Amazon is the most benchmark company that I know of, yet we work with many, many large as well as mid-sized corporations not only do I not know anyone who's close, I don't even know folks who really have a plan to get there. And if you look at the structural barriers to getting there, uh, from a personnel standpoint, thousands, Amazon obviously comes to the game with thousands of Hadoop engineers, economists, data scientists. Their investment scale is enormous. Obviously, uh, we're all here as a representation of that and time. It took a lot of time to get to this point. Just as before I step into how we do it, the way we think about the CIO relationship and what's changing is traditionally CIOs have been viewed as a cost center. If you thought, think about Mark Andreessen saying software is going to eat the world, the need for corporations to think about software and capabilities as revenue generators as opposed to cost center become more and more critical. And that really requires moving to the front end of the product life cycle, not waiting for the level of maturity, using it as a competitive advantage, and forming the partnership with the CMO on how to take software and capabilities like AWS, like cloud, 
and turn that into revenue generation potential. Um, and I think most organizations will be faced with this in their digital transformation process. Hardhanks and Wipro, our goal was to be able to help our customers get to CRM 3.0, CRM 4.0, understanding those inherent barriers. Our goal was to deliver a solution that could get companies to 80% of where Amazon at, is at at one-tenth the time and one-tenth the cost. We didn't do it just with ourselves and internal capabilities. We set up an ecosystem, starting with a partnership with Opera Systems that essentially shortcuts the building of a customer system of intelligence that manages at the customer level uh, analytically driven attribution, all the way through to the way we tune our agency. So if you think about the traditional creatives in, uh, out there, they want to work on the next Apple brand campaign. Our approach is we need lots of inexpensive little bits of content to go with all those personalized insights. We actually take an approach of onshore, offshore, agile development and having a creative team that thrives on that. Very di different than a traditional agency. We run one of the largest third-party data stores in the world, and you, I'll walk through it in a minute. You cannot believe the insights coming out from third-party data. All of that designed to bring folks to a level that's much closer to Amazon very quickly. It's the overall systems architecture we recommend, um, including we're working with a middleware solution for the entire front office and really being driven by what I would call a system of intelligence, providing those insights at the individual customer level that are not traditional static insights like age income and psychographics, but real-time behavioral insights, even from the latest web traffic of the customer. The second piece, if you look at the third-party data that's out there, one of the things that's coming at every marketer is an unbelievable inundation of data. We're working with uh, folks who want to sell their first party data to us. Uh, we're working with a company that will give us raw location data off of cell phones. So the amount of insight you can get if you have the processing capabilities and approach is truly phenomenal. I want to just walk through what does transformation look like? And I want to take the most mundane marketing tactic I know of, direct mail. Um, as CMO of a Fortune 500, I sent 50 million pieces of direct mail a year, practically deforested the Amazon. Um, so the way I did it, my core process was every quarter I decide what worked, what didn't work, what were our offers, what's our creative theme, what were the best dates for the mail to be in home, like uh, back to school, etc. We, we couldn't do much personalization. It was cheap, low-cost postcards. And we'd put a huge engine in place, crank it up. Seven weeks later, you know, four million pieces a month fell out. And if I got to 1% response rate, I was doing backflips. What we're working on now with several companies is a complete transformation. They analyze, and we do too, digital traffic to identify the exact spot where it makes sense to send direct mail towards the middle, depending on the category, towards the middle to the end of the purchase process. That triggers in real time direct mail. The way the technology used to, for small batch direct mail in that scenario is highly personalized, higher cost per piece but triggered at a very specific time. The statistics that are surprising are companies are seeing 5 to 10% response rates, and an even more interesting number, 10 to 50x improvement over digital retargeting. The value, the next generation of direct mail isn't optimizing the old model. It's using it as another and more powerful form of digital media in a true omni-channel to give you a tremendous bump in conversion. If you look at personalization, I'll give you an example. Little Caesars changed their new mover program from sending a, the address of the nearest Little Caesars 
for, to a new mover, to a, for, to a map from that new mover to the nearest store saw a huge lift. I'll give you one other example just so this transformation truly goes across all channels. As CMO of CenturyLink, we went to, we implemented real-time next best offer in our inside sales channel. So truly generating at the rep desktop, what's the next best offer for that specific customer? We saw a 12% lift in close rate immediately across 120,000 promo calls a week. So the power of the transformation, you cannot truly capture the value of cloud in the front office without transforming your core processes to capture the enormous improvement that's possible. Um, if I were to end it, I would say this. If you look at CRM 4.0 and you're talking about voice search, all of a sudden personalization goes from a benefit, an upside in conversion, maybe some competitive advantage. But if you have a consumer talking to Alexa or Siri and you're not personalized, all of a sudden it looks like table stakes. So we're very passionate about what cloud can do for the front office and is required to do. That I'll turn it over to Glenn. All right. I have my own microphone. Maybe I don't. I'll take yours. Okay, so I guess we, I feel a bit smarter already. So I know about you guys. I know it's morning, but uh, so we talked a lot about the customer experience side right? and, and how you're driving uh, your customers to get smarter about the interaction with their customers. So just pivoting this a little bit, right? So Glenn, let's, let's, let's talk more about how we empower our own workers, right, around that. Now, you co-founded a native cloud startup company, right? Um, and I, I know you started out on the SaaS side of things. When did you start getting engaged with, with Amazon and AWS, and what has been your journey so far? Uh, well, just to set this, the context a little bit, Manish, Aperio, we founded Aperio in 2006 as a pure cloud consulting company, uh, and we aspired to create products as well. And uh, we were acquired by Wipro last year, so we're now a Wipro company. Uh, but when we started as a Salesforce.com partner, we thought we saw a product opportunity in, in, uh, in integrating Google uh, for, uh, for work with Salesforce. It's ironic that 10 years later, the two companies have now announced a partnership. But we were integrating those products 10 years ago, and we used uh, AWS S3 and EC2 to synchronize your Google contacts and calendars with your Salesforce contacts and calendars. We extended the Salesforce storage model uh, to uh, gigabyte-sized attachments uh, stored securely on S3. And we also uh, extended Gmail to show CRM data in context uh, with an EC2-based process. So we were AWS ISVs as early as uh, 2007. Wow. So since then, uh, I, I know you, you have some of your mission-critical systems which are uh, running, leveraging the power of AWS. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right, so those were our, our uh, customer-facing products, and th those are still used today, 10 years later, by thousands of customers, uh, and they're still running on AWS. But our real move to AWS occurred in 2010. We created a product for our own consultants called the Cloud Management Center, or CMC. The idea of CMC is to run all of our projects through a common platform, a common unified suite that would handle project management, agile software development. We didn't like what we saw in Rally and Jira and some of the other alternatives. Uh, release management and also analytics. And Salesforce was and still is our biggest partner, but we didn't think the force.com platform was sufficient to handle all the needs of CMC. So it, it, right, right from the beginning, to, uh, thinking about Sid's comments about the five R's of how to migrate an application, this would be a cloud-native application. We never had to migrate anything. We built right from the start uh, significant components of CMC uh, on the AWS platform. So Salesforce is the front end, uh, but we use lots of parts of, of AWS for the back end. Um, 
over time, uh, Ramesh, this has turned into a smart application. I wouldn't say we were so smart in 2010 as to think that's what we were building. We just thought we needed storage and CPU, but it's evolved from there. So uh, let me go talk a little bit about um, some of the architecture of CMC uh, and talk about where AWS fits in and where Salesforce's AppCloud platform fits in. So it, we think of Salesforce as basically the brains of CMC and AWS is the brawn. And we needed a lot of brawn because we've got over 1,100 customers in CMC. We have run uh, over 14,000 sprints in various projects through CMC. We're now over 300,000 user stories, and we're just collecting all these huge piles of data about our projects. No way we could have possibly fit that into, uh, into Salesforce. So for starters, we store our customers' metadata from their cloud environments, like their Salesforce orgs, their Google domains, their Workday tenants. We store all that data in an Amazon S3, uh, Amazon S3 buckets. We store metadata about the metadata, that is metrics, in a DynamoDB. And that's become pretty huge over the years. That's over 40 terabytes at this point of data about our customers' environments. It's, it, we sort of think of it as an, uh, analogous to an IoT situation where a customer Salesforce org is throwing off these thousands of data points constantly about how they're using Salesforce and about how they're doing our projects on Salesforce. So we're collecting all of these data points in a gigantic store on DynamoDB. Um, so now let's talk about the CMC architecture a little bit. It's got a pretty extensive API. Uh, we built CMC in a highly componentized way and our customers can also use the API and there's a CloudFront uh, interface in front of that API. And thank goodness we did it that way because we've spent a good portion of the last year porting over a lot of the back end of that API from EC2 to an a, a API gateway slash Lambda architecture. And we've done that seamlessly because CloudFront is in front of that whole mess and the API consumers don't know the difference. Um, we, uh, uh, so uh, throw in uh, Lambda and API gateway. Our ambition is to get off of EC2 altogether, get 100% onto Lambdas. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, when we do get there, we're still gonna have some long running batch jobs on EC2. So EC2 will, will be in our runtime at least until such time as AWS figures out how to give us long running jobs uh, on, on, uh, on Lambda. Um, we, uh, we also have a scheduler. We, we call out to our customers' environments all the time and we use CloudWatch as our scheduler. Uh, we build an SQS queue of jobs, and those jobs are ex executed on EC2. Uh, the last bit I'll talk about, Manish, is cloud search. So if any, uh, if any of you run Salesforce as your CRM, it, it, the search engine's pretty basic. Um, it doesn't give you a sophisticated set of search options. We have something we call the cloud asset library, which is reusable software components that we, can, that we own the IP for, that we use from project to project. It's a nice repository, it's about 3,000 assets and growing, but we needed an effective search engine because you can imagine the different ways that you need to match up assets to types of projects. So we used AWS um, uh, Cloud Search in front of our Cloud Asset Library. So at this point, you know, the back end is so interwoven between AWS and force.com, but to a user, it just looks like a Salesforce application. And that's, that's great. So did, I, I know you touched upon this a little bit, right? But you, did you start out, or would you call it that this is a smart application, that the way that Ramesh described it? Right. So um, in keeping with the terminology of the day, and I think it's a great taxonomy to think about what makes, what's the difference between an app, which we've all built, and a smart application. Are we taking advantage of the huge amounts of data that we're collecting and using that in any way to benefit our customers? I think we are, you know, first in the sense that CMC is collecting these data points, an architecture we've had from the beginning, but as the scale of AWS and the costs have come down and the, and the performance has gone up, you know, we've cranked up how much we're collecting about our customers. So at the very least, we're aware of, probably the most aware application in the entire taxonomy of a customer's architecture of what they're using their cloud environments for. I, I, I think CMC knows more about their apps than the customer knows. So we, we have this great awareness kind of situation with CMC that we're converting into intelligence. In the beginning, intelligence just meant 
dear customer, here's your metrics. Look at your trends. Your burn downs are good, they're bad. Your, your growth is, is in the top 1% or the bottom 1% of our customer base. Um, uh, over time, we've tried to make the app sm smarter and, and use the intelligence uh, or create intelligence from all the data we're collecting. I'll give a very simple example. CMC is a release management tool. And so our users create manifest item packages to move from you know, Salesforce dev to QA to production, that sort of thing. And it handles the, the release management. Um, we try now to suggest what should go into those packages. We know what the users have been touching. We know the artifacts that are associated with user stories that have had a lot of recent activity. And when they go to build a package, we propose, hey, you might want to put X, Y, and Z in that package. It looks like it's been, it's been hot. So at this point, saves the user's time, and it definitely reduces deployment errors to you know, make sure you catch everything that's supposed to be in the deployment. Um, the last bit that we've experimented with this year uh, in, in the realm of smart apps is the building of chatbots. Um, it, it, CMC has a lot of sophisticated developers, and it's also got a lot of end users, people that are just there to sort of you know, double-check user stories. And so we're trying to give them a conversational interface. So we've built a, a, ser a set of chatbots that can answer simple questions like, give me a list of all the stories I'm assigned to. Uh, we use uh, AWS Lex for natural language understanding. We convert those queries uh, into intents and then ultimately into API calls. And we give the customer an answer that, you know, in the old days they would have had to know how to write a Salesforce report. Now they just ask the chatbot and uh, we serve up lists of things like, here's all my stories. So, I mean, frankly, it all seems a little primitive to us so far because, you know, our roadmap is to really Give, the, give our customers the benefit of all this intelligence we're collecting. We want to start to use machine learning to uh, observe patterns about our customers' projects and basically give them early warning. We've seen 14,000 projects. We can see the fingerprint of 14,001, and it doesn't look so good, or maybe it looks really good based on our past data and give them warnings about um, you know, are there sprints too long or too short? Are there story points uh, in unusual uh, areas of a spectrum, things like that. So using the intelligence to the benefit of the customer. That's great. So I think we'll pivot a little bit. I know we, we heard from Shirish about how he's driving, basically improving right, the ex customer experience. Glenn talked about from a work experience what they build. Now, can I, I know you spend more than half your time on planes, right? You meet with global thousand customers all the time, right? Just, just, just talk us through basically when, when you're interacting with these very large organizations, right, with very diverse needs, um, and, and they're in some journey or other in terms of building the smart applications, how do you really help them deploy, manage, operate these smart applications at scale? Yeah, uh, I had the global infrastructure services business, and our first goal is to advise customer to get into a cloud. Uh, we take a first cloud approach, and I'm sure in a couple of years down the line, it will become an only cloud approach. So, and coming to Manish, uh, the question what you asked, you know smart applications are used by the internal users as well as the external users, and they use uh, traditional methodology of logging in as well as a non-traditional methodology, which has becoming a traditional like using a mobile and wearable, wearable devices, etc. Now, first uh, important thing from a smart application from a user perspective is to get a seamless end-user experience while using the application. So for that, the first fundamental block which has to be in place is a compute, storage, network, security, and uh, the way authentication happens. So that determines the uh, end-user experience which comes in uh, from a user perspective. Second important block is the orchestration and automation layer uh, which has to be in place. And third important thing which has evolved over a period of time is how cognitive and machine learning is being used to ensure that the seamless user experience is taken care of. So we at Wipro have rolled out a framework called Boundaryless Data Center Framework, which is more a marketplace which enables customer to get into uh, deployment, usage, operate, run, and then optimize of a smart applications from an infrastructure layer perspective. And there are enormous examples of uh, we helping customer to get their cloud journey uh, uh, concluded. For example, I'll give you an example of a customer in US who is using surveillance through a drone on Amazon Cloud. 
So uh, obviously the places where uh, uh, human being cannot reach, drones are used for a surveillance perspective. The data is picked up by the drone and get fed through Amazon Cloud so that the analytical engine can be used to do a further processing of the data points. So these are the examples which are available. Uh, various customers are at the various journey of their cloud adoption and our aim is to ensure that they succeed in that journey uh, with the proper security in place. So uh, I think it's building upon that, right? So um, when you have so much development going on in an organization, right, you don't really have the horsepower to really support everybody, right? So DevOps and automation of the DevOps becomes very important, right? So can you just share your perspective around how that is evolving? Yeah, so that is an interesting point, right? And uh, uh, in the legacy, legacy way, when the applications were being built, uh, the entire development used to take certain weeks to get the development done. Uh, testing used to take maybe a few days to get the testing done, and there used to be a stringent norm to get the release management done. So if you figure it out, in the past, it should take about anywhere between a three to six months, and probably Shirish can give more data points from a perspective, or Apirio can talk about what used to happen 10 years back. It used to take about three to six months to get any application deployed in a customer environment. Obviously, the business expectations have significantly changed over a period of time. Now, business is not willing to wait for three to six months. They're not, they're willing to wait maybe a few days now, or they want an instant result perspective. And hence, there is a concept of uh, continuous integration and continuous uh, deployment, which has come in place. And that's where the day of uh, uh, integration becomes extremely critical uh, to get these things done. Using Chef and Puppet programmable languages are being used to get this uh, CI and CDI, uh, CD done uh, regularly. Uh, again, one more example of uh, one of our customer where we have helped them to get their digital marketing campaign implemented through uh, Amazon Cloud where uh, uh, campaign gets uh, redeveloped quite regularly based on the user feedback which is coming in and it is fed again so that a campaign gets revised at a, at a significantly regular interval and those things are possible only because of a DevOps automation which is being implemented by customer. So I know smart applications have a lot of inputs, right? You have people using them on mobile, you have devices all over the place, IoT, uh, when, when you have so many distributed endpoints which are providing your data and interacting with these applications, right? How do you handle that fault tolerance, that performance at scale? Yeah, uh, interesting question. Uh, so if you, if you look at uh, traditionally, the NOC used to take care of all the monitoring work from an infrastructure perspective and uh, monitoring can uh, usually takes care of all the known related issues and they will pass on an alert to uh, the administrator to ensure that uh, alert is taken care of. But gone are the days where uh, only known issues come in, right? You get a lot of unknown issues and uh, if uh, uh, intelligence of unknown issues and management of unknown issues are not taken care of, then obviously the things cannot work appropriately. And that's where the concept of algorithm intelligence has come in from an operations perspective. So. Currently, the uh, automation which is happening at the customer end or the monitoring which is happening at the customer end has to take care of algorithm in intelligence using an AI platform in a such a way that the unknown issues not only get detected and reported, it get fixed also. So from a Wipro perspective, we have our own artificial intelligence framework, which we call as a homes. We are using that artificial intelligence framework to ensure that uh, unknown not only gets monitored and reported, it uh, gets healed also. So I think in all that, I know, Shirish, you touched upon this. I know, said you talked about a little bit, right? But security uh, is, is becoming even more important, right? And the dynamics around that. Uh, so can you talk about like how, what impact do, the, uh, this, do these smart applications have from a security operations perspective? Yeah, so security continues to be uh, extremely important. And uh, the surveys show that 81% of the organizations are worried that security can be a concern from a cloud perspective. Uh, every transformation layer uh, need to have a security as a, as a quite embedded thing into the work, right? Today, you see uh, the users uh, access uh, all the devices through various means of access, right? It can be a laptop, mobile, variable devices-based access. Your data is getting stored either through a OneDrive method or a, or a data lake perspective. Uh, users can access from anywhere in the globe. 
every uh, country has their own security standard norms etc the business defines that what kind of a access mechanism has to be in place and hence security becomes extremely critical to ensure that uh, uh, the appropriate security norms has been taken care of compliance has been taken care of and we at wipro has a separate group which focuses on cyber security and risk and compliance perspective and we work very closely from a infrastructure perspective from that group uh, so they ensure that uh, we are on a continuous compliance basis we have a various uh, tools and technologies available including some of the startups which we have tied up which can give us not only a continuous compliance but threat intelligence threat management perspective uh, we have also uh, built a security solution called cloud watch which keeps on ensuring that it keeps on giving us an alert from a security perspective so that we ensure that the environment runs quite secure uh, from a peace of mind perspective thanks guys i i know some of you would have questions right so i don't want to hog all the things but just quickly want to summarize and then then we will go to the audience questions right so i know ramesh talked about uh, what smart applications are said shared as industry perspective and what customers uh, that the team interacts with and the organization interacts with um, shrish talked about what he has built right in terms of how that aware and intelligent application can help drive engagement with the customers uh, glen talked about how he is running a mission critical application right heavily using some of the most advanced features that aws has to offer and kiran really talked about how do you really help run basically efficiently right how how do you really automate the operations to manage and handle these smart applications so thanks for your time i think we will open up for a few questions you you had one here yeah Java to Golang, Python, PHP, and if you did, how was the transition and how difficult it was? I suppose I'll start. Um, so um, uh, we normally recruit Java developers. They just have the, once you learn the structure of an object-oriented language, we can convert your skills. Um, as far as uh, languages used in our projects, I, I think JavaScript and, and familiarity with the JavaScript libraries is is much more of a current issue for us. Finding people that can create um, UX compliant frameworks, um, we, we're, we 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 have the advantage of not having to migrate a legacy staff, I suppose. But when, when, you know, one thing we see with our customers is. Um, encouraging CIOs to look at cloud as a, as a, a career opportunity for their teams and B, as a future-proofing. If you're still running on-premise applications, um, vendors that have not gotten the cloud religion, you're putting your enterprise in jeopardy because those skills are dwindling quickly. And, and people graduating from college today don't want to support a Siebel system. Um, so we kind of pivot that and, and turn it into a career opportunity. Any other questions? So, Shish, I had a question for you, right? So, I, I know you touched upon this. Oh, sorry. Yeah, please. answer that first sure. <laughs> since we were a small startup which became a big startup um, we thank our lucky stars every day that we separated inter interface from implementation um, right from the beginning when we built our first AWS processes on EC2 so think big um, I remember when we started Aperio we thought let's build a company that could have a thousand employees every process we put in place we thought about a thousand turned out that was too small but you should be thinking in terms of thousands and millions of users but separating interface from implementation has allowed us to migrate from EC2 runtimes to API gateway lambda functions 
Um, and uh, over the years, it's, it's enabled a lot of other architectural migrations. So that's my one bit of advice. So I can, I can talk a little bit about uh, what we see when we, when I as an analyst talk to you know, folks like yourself, right? what are they going through? My advice is always <clears throat> sort of walk before you can run, right? You don't have to use all the esoteric stuff around AI and ML right away. It's more about understanding the portfolio of your applications and what the nuances of the applications are and look at it from sort of the business perspective, the technology perspective, the operational perspective, right? And cost, of course. So, you know, what are the, what are the dependencies of the application? What's, what's the risk to the application if you move it to the cloud? You know, what is it, um, uh, what are the parameters in terms of, uh, you know, perform CPU, IO, networking bandwidth. One of the things I'd like to talk about is when we move an application to the cloud, people just think of the computer storage aspects, but forget about the connectivity model, because now, the application is running away from your data center, which still needs to interact with other applications that haven't moved, or perhaps the data could move due to governance or compliance reasons. So thinking about those aspects, you know, at Gardner we've published research around this, right? We talk about the APM model and the IPM model, the application performance model and the infrastructure performance model. So really it's a detailed flowchart of sorts and going and subjecting every application through that rigor is the key, not, not to think about you know, solving world hunger from that perspective. Um, the, the one thing I'd say, having been on the other side of it, a company with um, a lot of advantages in terms of scale, but um, we had, our systems were designed in the 60s. So the architect, I think thinking ahead to everything that's coming and getting your architecture as future-proofed as possible, as open as possible, take advantage of the future is really where I see the born in the cloud companies having a huge advantage. So making good architectural decisions that will give you flexibility, i give you a simple example. I mean, nobody could do anything about it, but uh, we were a large telco, third largest in the country. I had to go to code to do a pricing change in consumer. Uh, it was a six-month cycle to make a pricing change because our system was developed before relational database technology. Um, I hate to say that, but that's what it was. And there were so many places where I could have changed the customer. I'll give you a simple example, and this will be surprising, but um, you know, one of the things that was tough for us was the multi-dwelling unit market, the apartment market. People moved a lot. We spent a lot, lot of money to acquire them. We launched a product called CenturyLink On. You come in, you sign up, give us your credit card. We never talk to you, you get gigabit. No acquisition costs. What surprised us was not the reduction of acquisition costs. Our average penetration was 75% in six months. We were wiping the cable company off the planet. But when we get back, got back into our architecture, because we hadn't built a microservices-based architecture, it was, you know, we'd all design a telco to be that experience if we we're starting now versus when it was, but it was too hard-coded for us to make that fundamental change. Same thing would be the way you manage your personalization data about your customer. The architectural choices you make right now are gonna live with you for a long time. And your real advantage of lack of scale sits in that architecture and the ability to adapt. Thank you. I think we have time for just one last question. No? Okay, cool. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for your time.